This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Vegas.com. I've been uh, told by the boardwalk higher-ups that people are upset about my ad reads, uh, both fans and uh, companies alike. They say... Sometimes I'm a little too uh sometimes I'm a little too vulgar. Sometimes I'm a little too fast in the ad read, sometimes I'm a little too slow. Getting all kinds of notes. Uh so in um in a in a kind of a protest here, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the ad, just the ad read, no jokes, nothing else. So Vegas.com has got the best deals in Las Vegas hotels of every type to help you find the perfect room that will fit your budget. Next. Looking for a cheap stay in a clean cubby? No problem. How about suites of epic grandeur and luxury Las Vegas resorts? Yep, got them, too. Yeah, next. Before you make your Las Vegas hotel reservations, read hotel reviews from people who've actually stayed there. So you'll know you're making the right choice. Next. Acrobats, divas, magicians, jokesters, showgirls, and puppets. <laughs> wow. The new the new lions, tigers, bears, oh my. There are so many shows in Las Vegas that you can't possibly take them all in. But there's not a doubt you'll find something that'll blow you away. Good thing Vegas.com has tickets to all of them. Need help finding the best things to do in Las Vegas? Vegas.com knows what you want, and we've got it. Roller coasters, check. You know those famous roller coasters in Las Vegas? The uh, the ones that everyone goes to Las Vegas to go on, the roller coasters? Machine gun shooting ranges, yep. Zip lines, we've got multiples. <laughs> we've got more than one. Uh, Zipline. Free attractions? We've got those too. Don't you love those free attractions? I love to be asked, do you want to go see a free attraction? Uh, Vegas is the place to do what you would never do at home, and we're going to help you do it. Vegas.com offers the best package deals on Las Vegas vacations with more than 400 airlines from 1,700 departure cities, plus world class Vegas resorts, so we can help you create a great vacation package at the best price. And booking your flight and hotel room together can help you save on the entire package. Well, that's uh, that's the ad read. I guess I did make fun of it a little bit, which is probably going to get me in trouble here. But uh, this is how I'm going to read ads from now, just monotone voice, making a couple jokes. I'm a little hungover, which is probably why I sound more monotone than usual. But that's it. So find the best deals on hotels and trips to Vegas, and listeners will save even more by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash Vegas. That's boardwalkaudio.com slash Vegas. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast of the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first... The best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash writing. Click the Support Artist button, shop on Amazon like Norlywood, you get a little kickback. We're continuing our month of the same sketch pitch with Heather Ann Campbell. She's so great, and she's done pretty much everything you can do in this business. Uh, we didn't talk about it, but she's obviously one of the stars of the latest incarnation of Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is crazy in and of itself and deserves its own podcast episode. But we do talk about her sketch group, The Midnight Show, writing on SNL, The Eric Andre Show, Corporate, The Upcoming Miracle Workers, and the new reboot of The Twilight Zone, which is also insane that she's working on the new reboot of The Twilight Zone. Uh, she's got so much experience, and she's really smart, and it was a real delight to talk to her. So here is Heather and Campbell. <laughs> 
Uh, Heather, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from Chicago. Uh, okay. I grew up in Chicago, moved out here, and have not really been back to Chicago since. Yeah? Uh, yeah. My family all moved away, so now mm-hmm. I'm all all L.A. Did you like growing up in Chicago? Um, I mean, I guess anybody likes where they... No. I don't I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I, I love Chicago. It's great. I have home. I don't. I don't have a lot of hometown pride, but I did, <laughs> like. It's fine. It's a place. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, you're about to say that uh, everyone like kind of likes where they grew up. Yeah. Or they don't. I guess. But yeah, I'm from Dallas, and that's like a, I like I like Dallas a lot, but I couldn't recommend anything to do there. Yeah. It's just kind of yeah. I can recommend some restaurants in Chicago. That's about yeah. it. Um. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Chicago, that's like a great American city, though. So maybe... Yeah, it is. It's a real working city. Oh, okay. Um, it was, it's, um, you know, you feel like there's, like everybody's there to actually do some work. Right. Yeah. Whereas sometimes here you feel like, how are these people at a restaurant <laughs> at 2.30 p.m. on a weekday? Like, doesn't anyone have a job? Right. I, I saw Unfriended 2 yesterday. Is that the is that the dark web? The dark web. Yeah, the dark yeah, web's yeah. coming for you. I saw it at ten oh five a.m. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And like st- ten people were there, and I thought, why are any of us here? <laughs> and um, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I just got my tickets for Mission Impossible Five. Five. Yeah. Five. yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to. That's gonna be great. I heard. I heard it's really good. Tom Cruise, yeah. man. Yeah. The he's the, the one thing he's got going for him is those uh, stunts. I the, you know the the poster is. I, well, the poster that was on my ticket, on my ticket, above my ticket <laughs> on the web, uh, is the stunt where he breaks his leg. It's like they're oh. like they're like putting that so far forward. Like, hey, remember when Tom Cruise <laughs> broke his foot jumping? <laughs> yeah, it it is. He's like fifty four. Is is that it? I think. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> it. Yeah. Oh man, I thought he was a lot older than that. Maybe he is older. I don't know, but he's like he's old. We you should, should look. You should. I can you, look at it. Yeah, oh, I, cool. it's on airplane mode too. Oh, uh, mine is too. Oh, yeah. Wow. Anyway, if you know how old he is, tweet at both of us. <laughs> yeah. How old Tom Cruise is? <laughs> uh, so, did, when did you first get interested in comedy? Um. Well, I started doing comedy very young, uh, as I everybody knows, I guess at this point. Um, I was in uh, high school in Chicago and uh, started going to. Um, Improv Olympic, uh, because of one of my, uh, high, we, we didn't have drama at my high school, but we had like a, an after school theater program of sorts, uh, where there was like one play per year. And, uh, that guy brought me to, his name was Ian Gerber and, uh, Mr. Gerber brought us to, uh, Improv Olympic and I was sort of hooked from that point forward. Um, the first show I ever saw was featuring my future, uh, scene and comedy partner, partner uh, Miles Stroth, um, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, from that point forward, just sort of did comedy on the weekends. I never really expected it to be my job. Uh, I always wanted to be like a action or sci-fi horror uh, screenwriter. And then um, started taking it a lot more seriously when I got cast in Boom Chicago. Which was a few years later, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, that was. I don't even remember what your question was. I feel like I'm just <laughs> rambling. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Okay. So you, you were you were like 14 when you started. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. insane. I mean, how do you? You're like doing classes like 
you know, older men and women, older men, that is crazy too. Well, the truth is that I didn't start classes right away. I I, uh, was doing the jam, um, which is sort of like the open mic of improv formats. uh, And it was predominantly short form, like it wasn't long form. And after I'd been doing that for maybe a few years, maybe two years, uh, then the owner of the theater was like, hey, you should take classes. And I didn't even know classes existed. I was just like, (laughs) oh, this is a space where you just like, get up on stage and um yeah i started taking classes and i was definitely definitely the youngest person in the class now i feel like now there are high school reach out programs and there are um uh like i don't know boot camps for high school kids to do improv or learn comedy uh but at the time it was yeah it was me uh you could still smoke inside so um (laughs) oh wow so like Del Close was one of the teachers that I had during that period and he would just smoke in class. Oh, wow. Like he would smoke while teaching us, um, which was, it's crazy to look back on doing yeah. those shows in like a smoke filled room. Same with <laughs> Boom. When I moved to Boom, where when I moved to Amsterdam, uh, it was still legal to smoke indoors there. So all of those shows I did in a huge smoke-filled room <laughs> like it was like the 1950s yeah <laughs> yeah and that was only like the late 90s well yeah was... i was at boom until 2005 and it was still legal to smoke wow. uh in at boom it was crazy do you think that changes like your performance well so i was there with matt jones uh and he it destroyed his voice uh constantly singing and like the reason matt jones from Breaking Bad and Mom. The oh, reason right, yeah. he sounds like this the whole yeah. time, that's because of that smoke-filled room. Wow. So he kind of, in a way, I mean, he's a talented dude, but he kind of owes his career to <laughs> just constantly inhaling Dutch cigarettes. Gosh. Yeah. So how'd you get started at, at Boom? Um. Well, uh, I was, so I was out here to write movies um and i got uh very lucky and had a my first screenplay passed around not passed on eventually passed on but passed around in town um and i was getting notes and they were really rough and i didn't know how to take notes and i had no manager or no agent and a friend of mine uh his name was devin was auditioning for boom in chicago and this was back when my parents still live there and he was like hey you should audition for boom you're super sad lately uh, just, you know, come out and support me and back me up so I know somebody who I'm auditioning with. And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, sure. I didn't really think that I would get it and I didn't really ever intend to move to Amsterdam. And then they offered the job and I was like, oh, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, and I called my mom and I was like, should I do this? And I'd never left the country. And my mom was like, you have to go, like... That's such a great opportunity, and I would do it if I was your age and could do anything. Um, so that's how I got started at Boom was mm-hmm. thanks to Devin, uh, who we all called Devo at the time. We called him Devo. 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 <laughs> uh, thanks to Devo saying, hey, you should audition this, how my entire life went in an entirely different direction. What's, what are like Amsterdam audiences like? Well, they're international. Um, they're, mm-hmm. I would say they're probably, at the time that I was there, I don't know now, uh, there were like 40% uh, Dutch people and 60% all sorts of people from all over the mm. world. 
Uh, so you would have these like huge groups of Australians who were there for like their bachelorette parties, uh, huge groups of American kids, college kids, uh, like business people. Lots of, there'd be like a table, we'd get like a breakdown of the audience before every show and it'd yeah. be like, okay, so IBM is in the back row, <laughs> uh, you know, make sure to like reach out to them and like include them in the show at some point. There's, um, you know, some senator or something, uh, but it was um, predominantly Dutch. Uh, and then, I mean, the largest single group would be Dutch people and then the rest of the audience would be mixed. So, uh, in Chicago, it's like half improv, half sketch, right? Yes. So, how do they react to, like, certain sketches? Are there certain sketches that would do better with that audience rather than, like, an American audience? Well, we... So, the show... Again, this has been a while. I yeah. just went back uh, last weekend for the 25th anniversary, and the, the theater and the structure of the show has changed a lot, and dramatically. It's not even in the same space anymore that I performed in with, uh, with my cast. Um or my cast. That's very possessive <laughs> with my cast. Um, but at the time, uh, you would try and tailor the show to an international viewpoint um, while also maintaining a strong through line of Dutch specifics. Mm. So like we would do bits about Dutch politicians that nobody here has heard about, like Pimp for Town or whatever. Uh, and... Um, or we, I mean, when I was there was when uh, Theo van Gogh was murdered. Uh, and that was like sort of the Dutch 9-11 was yeah. there. This um, sort of uh, film provocateur, this dude is, I mean, he's a racist. He was just like an anti-Muslim racist. But uh, he was beheaded in like one of the major um, uh, squares. He was beheaded in the Heinekenplein. Uh, so we would talk about that in the show. I mean, not do jokes about mm -hmm. it, but you'd have to address that, mm -hmm. uh, in the show. And, um, that would be something that maybe like Americans didn't know what the hell we were talking right. about, but to not talk about it in a Dutch room would be crazy. You know, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, it does. But yeah. so did you guys ever try to make jokes out of it or was this kind of like, I mean, not that specifically, but yeah. like you could, if somebody yelled it out, you couldn't just pretend like you had no idea what it was, yeah. what he, what, what that audience member was talking about. Mm -hmm. So for, um, for like any European audience members, they would understand the references, but for, um, for like, specifically for Americans, like if you weren't talking about American stuff, they were like, what are you, what are you talking about? Uh, but I feel like, you know, the British would know what was happening in Holland and vice versa mm -hmm. to some degree. Um, yeah. And we would get like quizzed on who the prime minister's secretary was and who the, you like, so you'd <laughs> kind of do rounds of like just brush up on international events. Um, yeah. I don't know. It was, it was a really, I don't know any of that. Well, I guess I know, I don't know any of that shit anymore. <laughs> yeah. Did you, uh, performing like every night for this like international audience, is that kind of where you like learned comedy, would you say? I feel like in order to be cast at Boom, you have to have a pretty strong foundation mm. in comedy before you go. I did uh, Improv Olympic from 14 through uh, going to Boom. And then I also did the Meow Show at Northwestern, which was the show that... so. Boom Chicago was started by former Meow Show members. And so the format was very similar. It was half sketch, half improv. 
Uh, and I did that for four years. And that format just sort of was grafted onto a Dutch mm. stage. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't say that I knew... Until I started doing the midnight show at UCB, I, I did not have like an education in sketch comedy. It was mm. sort of like, oh, I'll try telling this story. I'll try doing that. And then when we started doing the midnight show, uh, we all sort of went to a like a private personal comedy college. We watched every episode of The State, every episode of Monty Python, every episode of SNL. Like we really like learned sketch and figured out what was working and what wasn't in, in the things that were making us laugh. Mm. And I feel like that was the first time that I ever thought about sketch comedy beyond like what would be funny here and maybe I should write that. Mm. Uh, and it became more about like how can you tell this set of stories and jokes in three to four pages um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Great. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have some water. Yeah, go for great. it. <laughs> so, uh, oh. oh God. Oh no. <laughs> the mic. I broke the mic. Okay. You can maybe, you can even set it down if you want like on the couch or something. There you go. It makes it easier. Yeah. Okay. Um. Oh, did I turn it off? I think I turned it off. Oh, you just have to. There we go. There you go. Okay, great. Cool. All right. <laughs> I'll edit all of that out. Okay, great. <laughs> so, uh. After moving Chicago, you come back to L.A., I presume? Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, whoop. what's that? Nope. All right, let's see if that... Uh, all right, whatever. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, after... It might be, yeah, you think if you wrap the... Should I do this? Yeah, if you wrap it around. Given it a noose. Um, <laughs> Here, let me ask the question again. Great. <laughs> okay. Uh, so after Boom Chicago, you went back to L.A. Yes. After Boom Chicago, I returned to L.A. Um, I uh, started doing, well, I finished. <laughs> Before I went to Boom, I did uh, as many Groundlings classes as I could. Because mm. when I went to Boom, there was no UCB out here. Uh, and the waiting list for whatever the next class was, was about three years long. So I went to boom, had an entirely different life, came back and then picked right back up at the groundlings. Wow. Uh, did, uh, that's absurd. Yeah. It's really crazy. I had, it's, it's probably worse today, right? I don't, I, I'm, I can't imagine. Yeah. Uh, true, yeah. I, because there's so much more comedy. Yeah. Theaters. There's more comedy and I feel like there's less demand specifically for groundlings classes. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah. So I, Came back, did the Sunday company for the Groundlings, um, was kicked out, and then uh, started doing the Midnight Show immediately after mm-hmm. that. Um, like a few months after leaving the Sunday company. How did you guys... force. You were forced out? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, every six months at the at the Sunday company, they, uh, they ask, uh, or they, they, they give you sort of a review, and they tell you whether or not you're funny enough to stay... Uh, and I was the only person uh, let go from my class, which I guess I will wear as a badge of honor from this, for <laughs> forever. Because <laughs> um, I guess they just didn't get... I don't know what. I, yeah. You never find out what the hell happened. Right. Yeah. That's like a true thing in just every everything. Yeah. You never find out why something doesn't happen. Nope, you never do. Which is frustrating. Yeah, well, yeah. a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so how did you meet everyone on The Midnight Show? So, um... We, 
at UCB, there was a big showcase for Lauren Michaels. Uh, and um, the midnight show was... So most of the people who auditioned in that showcase or, or went up in front of Lauren were... Um, the became like there was a guy who was uh, watching that show and he's like, why isn't this a sketch show? Why isn't the mm. show that I'm watching tonight a sketch show at UCB? And so he asked 26 of us. Wow. Uh, like split in half to be writers and performers in this thing he thought he would call the Midnight Show. Uh, and then after a few months of that, it was like, this is crazy. You can't have this many people in a thing. Uh, and so half the people were sort of like asked to let, like to move on. And the rest of us sort of became the core show that still basically exists today. Um, although this, the, our final show, cause it's been 10 years now. So our final show is coming up in the beginning of August. Uh, cause we're all adults now okay. and have jobs <laughs> and <laughs> some people are engaged and wow. you know, people got to move on. Yeah. Um, but that's how the show started was initially it was a showcase for SNL and then somebody was like, that should be the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this was pre like mod night as a thing. Yes. Yes. So there was not much sketch going on at UCB at this time. Uh, no. Um, I mean, there were sketch nights and sketch groups. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure the birthday boys, uh, were around. I think Kiss from Daddy was also around and then the Midnight Show and then a few other places, a few other groups. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like there was a sketch night. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now there is. Mm -hmm. Good on them. (laughs) (laughs) Were your, were your first shows like immediately like funny and good or did you kind of have to grow? The shows were funny, but they were way too long. Right. Uh, Like the shows were like two hours long. And also they initially they wanted to just take the entire SNL format and and throw it onto the stage. So we had a band also that would play like a full blown, like full instruments band would play twice during the show. And that just bloated. Like, it was just so much. Well, did you have any, like, now famous bands on? I honestly don't remember the band's names. I was panicked and stressed and yeah. sweating about, like, <laughs> where's my costume? And, like, what are my lines? Um, the show was... Yeah, so, I mean... Also, the cast had people like James Adomian and, and Josh Fadum. Like, th- there was always... Uh, and, and then the guys who are currently in the show, who are just the best, funniest dudes in the whole world... Um, so there was always good content. It was just, back then it was just too much. Right. Yeah. I, I went to a college sketch show recently uh-huh. that was two and a half hours. And it's like, <sighs> and they actually, they stole some like sketches from like TV and stuff too. Oh, what? Yeah. Really? So they padded it out with like stolen sketches, which is so, so weird. Did they, did they call them covers? No, they just like put them in the show. That's fucking weird and you can tell too because they were like the funniest sketches because they were the ones that the college kids didn't write that's so weird yeah Yeah. that's so weird oh well usc calling you out usc Uh usc i i have i don't i don't know (laughs) (laughs) what to you makes like good live sketch um to me personally and Mm -hmm. this is not a blanket statement about what is good it but what i think is fun is I like um, sketch that is dangerous. Uh, I like, I mean, physically dangerous too. I think that the that when you go to see a live show, you have to be aware that there are people doing something immediately in front of you. 
And if it's just two people talking, then why would you, why bother to see that live? You could see that anywhere. You could see it taped or a transcript. So I like sketches that have um, not, a, not an element of stunt to them, but that is part of what I like in a show. Uh, I like, I just like there to be something vibrant and visual and uh, maybe a little bit messy or chaotic uh, while also still having jokes and writing. I don't want to just go see somebody like fall on a bunch of marbles, Mm -hmm. but I would like to see a sketch about somebody desperately trying to do something in a room that is just had a marble accident, you know, like they're like they're, I, yeah, so I th- the my you're looking for like some spectacle, I guess. Yeah, part of yeah, it. yeah, spectacle. Yeah, there should be a little bit of spectacle. Mm-hmm. Like there, the stage is there, you, the audience is there. Do something that involves both the stage and the audience simultaneously, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just like putting up a funny f- words. Like who, right. you know, read, they might as well tweet that or read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. That is like most sketch comedy that you see is kind of like very much like two people standing. Yeah, and... the the um the midnight show early on was like any photo that is taken of the show should be the craziest <laughs> photo posted on Facebook that week. It should look like the show is insane. Even if so like let's say there's a sketch about like uh, a chicken looking for his his wife, then Somebody comes out on stage and they're dressed like a chicken and somebody else is dressed like a chicken and then they are, I don't know, I can't remember the sketch, but maybe they're eating Thanksgiving dinner or mm-hmm. something. Uh, so the, the photo taken of that sketch is like visually arresting and cool, uh, but you also know that something funny was happening, right? Right. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So how does a sketch group like The Midnight Show become like successful? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> um, first off, uh, if you want to be a successful sketch show, do not have your show at midnight <laughs> uh, because no agent, no television right. network is going to come to a midnight show. <laughs> um, so that's rule one. Don't ever do that. Uh, rule two is don't just be a bunch of like white people that was another mistake we made it's just like it's it's like may i like in viewpoints and and uh, and having dynamic like identities will help your comedy be better um but unfortunately the showcase that ucb put up a million years ago was mostly white people uh and then ucb also is mostly white people um so that's two things to be successful. Uh, but given those constraints, um, the Midnight Show did have some success. We toured with Drew Carey for a year uh, and actually made money doing our show. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made an album. I think we made like 50 cents off that. That's a huge success for making a comedy album. Yeah. Self-published. Uh, we, for a while... Um, we were being contacted by advertising companies to make advertising. Uh, so we would be kind of given free reign over a brand uh, to a limit or to a degree. Um, but like we did a series of commercials for Hilton. We did a series of commercials for Carfax. Um, 
I guess that's success. Yeah. I don't know. The truth is, having a TV show is the success in uh, for a sketch comedy group. Um, but it was extremely difficult, given the size of our show and the hour at which it aired live, uh, to get that, which was always the goal. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, everybody in the show is now successful. Everybody in the show works in comedy or works as a writer uh, or a performer, or sometimes both. And that's a huge success for any group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Midnight Show was also specifically successful uh, online. Oh, yeah. Kind of as uh, YouTube started. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, I mean, we were making money that way, too. Can you tell that the only way I measure success is money? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the um, Yeah, we had... Um, a lot of success on YouTube. Uh, Drive Recklessly was nominated for a an American Comedy Award. Um, we worked with incredible directors like Peter Atencio. We worked with before he became the director of Key and Peele. Uh, Payman Benz, the same thing. Rodney Asher, who directed Room Two Thirty Seven. Uh, all of these fantastic directors were working with us before they made they had their big breaks. And we just kept doing sketch comedy like idiots, like like real <laughs> fools. <laughs> so you've, as you mentioned, you guys all have jobs now. Yep. How do you still have to prepare for like a monthly show, balancing work? Well, that's why we're finishing up <laughs> uh, because it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot of work um, to write an entirely new show every month. It used to be that we would meet twice a week, Wednesdays and Sundays, every week. Uh, you'd bring in sketch comedy, you'd get notes from each other, you'd talk about what was working, what wasn't. And then as time went on and more of us were working in television, then it was like, I don't have time to meet twice a week. Let's meet once a week. And then it became, let's meet four times total. Uh, and just bring in content, vote on the content, memorize it, do the rehearsals, put it up. Um, so we got, I think, really good at the streamlining of the process, like turning stuff in, memorize, like getting notes, changing it, memorizing it, teching it, putting it up. Um, but it's exhausting, man. Like I go to bed before 12, most nights of the week. Like that's, that's late when you're like got a job. Yeah. That's late. And it fucks up your sleep for days afterwards. Cause you get off stage at one 30 or whatever, one o'clock. And then you, have a drink at the bar and then you're the, then it's like 3 p 3 a.m and you're like oh my god i'm so tired but i can't sleep because i'm like everything was so loud and you also have to like shower off spaghetti sauce or whatever the <laughs> hell the sketch was um i think for the last sketch i got home and i was my head was covered in nacho cheese and so i had to go like wash nacho cheese it's just a nightmare but yeah it's i don't know it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now uh, the show's ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Do you feel sad, happy? Is it, I don't Both. Know. Yeah. Uh, there's like a real melancholy and a nostalgia. Um, you know, if you do anything for 10 years. And they're my family. Like, those guys are my brothers. Um, but it's just like financially and emotionally draining uh, to do that show every month. And also, nobody wants to be like 45 and, and doing sketch comedy without like <laughs> any prospect of like having a TV show. So 
at some point it's like we started discussing when are we going to end this? How are we going to end it? And I was like, well, we should maybe look at the 10 year anniversary as the finale. And I think that was in year seven. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, everything dies. Really, that's right. what, that's the moral of the that's story. True. Everything dies. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite sketch from the Midnight Show? Wow. Um. There are so many good sketches. Um. Man, I don't know. Um, I've laughed on that stage in sketches so hard that I've cried. Uh, I've laughed at, I mean, like the boys are so good at performing that I'll write something and they'll, they'll perform it and I'll laugh at it as if I didn't write it because of how much they are putting into it and, and, and bringing out of and adding like, you know, cause they'll say whatever the hell they want. Uh, <laughs> I I mean like that show has made me throw up in my mouth from watching somebody else do something. Um Hal Rudnick wrote a sketch about and it's in the um the UCB show which I think is on it used to be CISO and now they're on some it's Stars I think. Yeah, now they're on Stars. Yeah. Uh Hal wrote a sketch that is about uh two sushi models uh are like naked sushi like People are supposed to show up for a party and they get in a car crash and die. And so he gets uh, stand-ins at the last possible second. And it's um, two of the uh, two of the guys from the show come in, strip naked, lay down and cover themselves in deli meat <laughs> and, and cheese. And then fill crevices in their body like their ass cracks and their armpits with mayonnaise and and dipping condiments uh for for a bowl of french fries and then a guy comes in who believes this to be like the normal party thing and so we're all eating food off of their bodies and it's the hardest i've ever thrown up afterwards (laughs) like we ran jeff sloniker and i ran into the bathroom after filming and the the boys and girls bathroom boys and girls men's and women's bathrooms the uh the gendered bathrooms are next door to each other at uh, ucb sunset backstage and i could hear him throwing up through the wall as i was throwing up it's the worst but it was like incredible like it's the audience is screaming and laughing and and gagging all at the same Mm -hmm. time um yeah it's great i like that one a lot and then I like one that I wrote. I'm sorry. Did I go ahead? No, no. no I was just gonna say. Well, that's like spectacle. Like yeah. you're not gonna see a lot of sketch teams uh, go to that length. We um, one that I wrote that I really loved, mostly because of Jeff's performance. Uh, I wrote a sketch about like a kid who's in the hospital who's really sick, uh, and so they bring in Baymax, uh, like the robot from Big Hero Six, oh, okay, to sort of like cheer her up. Uh, and it's a guy in one of those giant inflatable costumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looks very much like actual Baymax because Baymax is like a big inflatable dude. Uh, and then after he says like, hi, and gives her a hug, and then he goes to leave, he can't fit through the door and starts having a panic attack inside the costume <laughs> and can't get 
out and from the outside, it looks like something is wrong with Baymax. And so the little kid is screaming, the guy in the costume is screaming, and the the visual of this huge inflatable robot th- thrashing around and like clawing at his own head to try and get like the zipper. What it, I didn't expect it to work as well as it did. It was one of the funniest things I've ever mm-hmm. seen. I wrote it, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so then you worked on a SNL. Yes. Uh, how'd you get hired for that? Um, I sent in a writing packet, um, and, uh, the writing packet that I turned in was stuff that I, I thought should be on the show. Like I, I, I wrote two writing packets one year and and the next year. The first year I tried to write stuff that I thought they would like, um, stuff that I thought they think was funny, political stuff, a sketch about North Korea, like, you know, whatever. And then the next year, the midnight show is sort of negotiating for a pilot deal and I needed to be at SNL a lot less because I was like, oh, man, this is it. Here comes the dream. Um, and that year I just turned in stuff that I thought was funny. Uh, I think one of the sketches may have been a single page long because I was also like, sketch should be really short, really fast, really yeah. crazy. Um, I turned in a sketch about uh, horses being... Uh, it, like a, a horse infestation in a house, um, just crazy stuff. And that was the year that I got hired. Uh, so I guess the lesson is write for your own voice because they see infinite, um, infinite sketch packets that are right for SNL, but they don't hear a lot of individual voices. And what they want is the show to have flavor. Um, if, the not ready for primetime players is still like the concept behind the show, which I'm not sure that it is. Uh, that means that these are dynamic personalities that wouldn't fit in anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think that extends to the writing staff. In general, how, how do you approach writing a packet? Um, well, uh, assume you're not going to get the job. Uh, write stuff that makes you laugh. The So... I, I feel like the best way to approach auditions or, or or writing packets is imagine you don't get the job and then you look at your packet the next day. Is it going to be a packet that you're proud of? That you're like, you know what? This, this is me, man. This is what I think is funny. If that's going to be true, then you'll never be really bummed. You just will know that you weren't right or for that job or the kind of person they were looking for. But if you tailor your content for them, then you will always second guess what it is that you did and what it is that you turned in. Could I have made this better for them? Um, Like, was this the right joke? Was this the joke they would have wanted? Then you're going to, that you're going to negotiate that failure in your head for the rest of your life. But if you read your packet the next day and you're like, man, like I like the, I had a sketch where, um, where Dr. Dre was yelling at a uh, can of Dr. Pepper, uh, (laughs) And I was like, this is, this is me. This is what I think is funny. Um, so yeah, you know, that's my best advice for writing a packet. Mm-hmm. Wait, re- imagine waking up the day after you don't get the job, reading your thing and being proud of it. Yeah, that, that is good advice. Cause I've done a lot of packets where it's just stuff that like, I just don't believe in it at all. Yeah. And it's terrible. Yeah. It's the worst. <laughs> yeah. It's the worst. And you, you don't, if you don't have that job, then, you know, 
Yeah. It's the same effect either way. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's not like there's some magical set of words that will get you the job. It's just right. sort of chaos. <laughs> uh, and then you can either be proud of the chaos you've turned in or, or not proud of it. Um, like, And there's tons of jobs I haven't gotten. Like I've, I've applied for Conan for years and didn't get that job. Uh, and it would be like, I'd walk away from that, look at my packet and be like, I think it would be really funny to have a lot of ostriches on stage. Like, that's funny to me. <laughs> like, so, you know, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did, did the Dr. Dre uh, sketch air? No. No? No. Well, so what was, uh, like, what was it like going to, like, from the Midnight Show to, like, a TV show like SNL? Uh, it was a lot less work. Um, oh, interesting. Because uh, the Midnight Show, when I went to SNL, I was writing 25 pages a week for Midnight Show. Wow. Uh, and because that was back when we were doing t- twice a week meetings. Um, so on, on a minimum, I was writing five sketches a week for TMS. Uh, and at SNL, you write one or two sketches per week. And that's not a lot of work. It's a lot of stress because you don't know wh- what's going to get into the show and you don't understand why certain things go forward and why certain things get passed on. But in terms of the volume of work, like you write something funny and you turn it in and then it's like, well, now, I mean, I, I'll go help other people with their funny. It's, it just wasn't, it, it, the hours were bad. Yeah. But the, con, the, the actual like quantity was really light. And then yeah. after SNL, I wrote for a thing called um, Incredible Crew, which was a kid's sketch show on Cartoon Network. And at that show, I was writing 50 or 60 pages a week. Wow. And that was nuts. Uh, Mikey Day was on that with me, and he ended up now at SNL. So we both, we went in opposite directions on mm-hmm. that journey. Um, but that, going from SNL to that, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to kill myself with how much <laughs> work, how much I'm writing every week. It would be like... 50 or 60 pages, and then you also had to bring in 20 to 40 pitches for the next week. Because the writing staff was only one, two, three. There was only four of us for an entire sketch show. Yeah. So so at SNL, uh, it's kind of a weird process because you you work uh, longer, perhaps, and longer hours, but there's like less content. And then... If something gets passed, it's like gone forever, right? Um, you can bring things back notoriously um, or infamously. I don't know what the right word there is. Uh, the uh, cowbell sketch was something that Will Ferrell brought in over and over and oh, really? over and over again. <laughs> and they the same thing happened with a couple of my pieces. I'd bring them in. People would laugh at them. It wouldn't get into the show. And then I would be, be asked, hey, can you bring this back in? Um, and I would be like... Okay. Uh, and then with Drive Recklessly, I brought that in and was told that it was not funny and di- it didn't even get put into the packet. Um, oh, wow. So uh, so that never actually was at SNL, even though I turned in the script uh, to the producer and I was like, hey, do you think this is good? And he was like, no. And then I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, you just... I think that show could be, I mean, the show's obviously great and, and awesome and uh, a juggernaut, uh, but I feel like people could start working at like <laughs> 11 on Tuesday and it would be a lot less stressful. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, this is weird too because it's obviously that like some of the most talented people in the country doing comedy, and then they're kind of put in a situation that's not necessarily conducive to producing the best comedy. Well, um, I mean, you could argue that no other show has been on that long, uh, right, so it yeah. is like I, I think that when you're in these uh, comedy bubbles on the coast, uh, that we expect the the comedy to be more intricate. Uh, more more dynamic in some way, um, but that's writing out the experiences of huge numbers of people all over this country who do not have a comedic vocabulary that the writers on the coast might have. Like my parents barely know who Kanye West is, okay. and so if you do a sketch about Kanye, not only do you have to t- teach them who Kanye West is. But then you also do a sketch that is funny whether or not you know any specifics about Kanye. Mm. Uh, And that's a very, very thin uh, thread to pull. Um, So you, I feel like you, I feel like the, the thing to say about SNL, the, the, the cool and hip thing to say is that it's not a good show, but the, in reality, it has to be at least somewhat good because it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are plenty of sketch shows uh, that do not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Like SCTV or... Um, f- uh, what is it? Friday? Friday, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, and those were sort of similar like concepts. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, it is interesting. Because I guess one, one could say that SNL would have probably been canceled if it wasn't... I mean, probably it would have definitely been canceled if it wasn't live. Yeah. And so then it's how much is the format versus the content. Although the content is usually, I mean, the content's not terrible. The content is pretty good. Yeah. And also, you know, uh, in an age where uh, virility sort of dictates whether or not something was a success, um, the fact that SNL still has viral content, none of us are forced to watch that stuff anymore. Like you can, you can or can't click on it. But if a concept is funny enough, like there's that, the fan beheading video that was, yeah, yeah. That, that went around a couple of years ago. Um, like that was just a legitimately funny sketch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody forced me to watch it. It was from Saturday Night Live. So I still, I, I do think they're doing good work. I, I'm frustrated as a politically minded person that they are not attacking as hard as they should on what is such egregious changes to american norms um but also half of their audience is like trump supporters so you can't just be cutthroat i guess Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah i mean i don't know (laughs) i don't know man yeah no yeah yeah i don't know either too too but the i i think their trump stuff has been kind of disappointing oh yeah it's awful yeah it's It's pretty awful Uh, it is weird. Like at a certain point, I wonder why they just just don't just don't talk about Trump this week. You know, just do a different sketch. But that's the only thing that anybody's talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, I was a huge fan of um, the President Show on Comedy yeah. Central. Huge fan. I thought it was an incredible show. But if you're a Trump supporter, you're, you're not going to watch that show. There's no way. Like you'd you'd get through five minutes and you'd be so offended, offended, <laughs> uh, quote unquote, offended. Uh, that you would never tune in again. And, like, I don't know. I guess... I, I I have no idea what humans should do about Trump and comedy. Like, it's just a, a puzzle. 
Yeah, it's it's there, no one's really found a great take. Maybe Atamanik maybe yeah. has, but it's, besides him, it's kind of hard to find a take on Trump that's not that's funny. That's yeah. first of all funny and also not like horrible. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I don't know either, man. <laughs> so uh, you left SNL after a year. Mm-hmm. Was that by choice? Um. Uh. So. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh. But also yes. Um. I had talked to my reps about how I didn't want to be in New York. Um, and I didn't, so it was not a choice, but also it was a great relief, uh, because I was like, I got to get out of here. Um, uh, that, I mean, that's the truth. Like I got the news and I was like, great. Oh, great. Great. Okay, cool. Um, thank you so much for this. This was fun. Uh, all right. Bye. Uh, so yeah. Um, also, I don't know. I feel like that show might be a bit of a sinkhole. Like, once you're really in, up to your knees in it, like, you can't imagine another way of life. Mm. So it was kind of nice to skip skip a stone across the surface of that lake and then be like, okay, I'm going to go do other things. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you worked on the Eric Andre show. Yes. How did that happen? Oh, my God. I love that show yeah. so much. Um, is, it, is, it, is it done? Um, I don't know what I'm allowed to say about anything about Eric Andre. Um, (laughs) uh, but, um, there are, there's more Eric Andre content coming that I have helped uh, work on. Um, but, uh, I, so, uh, let's see, how did I get involved? I think it was that I was on that kids show for Cartoon Network while doing the Midnight Show. Uh, and I think that the Cartoon Network Adult Swim family was aware of the kind of stuff that I was producing. Uh, and then they just invited me in. Like, I didn't submit... I don't think I submitted a packet or anything. And then just became part of that family. And I am so, so grateful. It is the most... I love every show that I've ever worked on. No show has ever been as fun <laughs> as writing yeah, for Eric Andre. I can imagine. The show, I mean, that show has so much freedom to kind yeah. of do whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, how do you even, as a writer, like when you start, <laughs> like, how do you even start generating ideas? Because it's so wide what you could do. It's, uh, what, I mean, hold on. I'm going to drink water. Yeah. So writing for the Eric Andre show uh, is still writing. I mean, there's, um, I'd be like, okay, today we're working on man on the street concepts and you'll write a bunch of man on the street pitches. And then you'll also potentially write possible directions that Eric can go on the street, like, like not directions, like physically, but like, if this happens, then maybe this can happen. Or if this happens, maybe that can happen. Um, then you'll do like, a day of writing monologues um, and like trying to come up with different shit that can happen in the monologues. You'll write bits for the um, set destruction. Uh, like you, you'd write like, oh man, what if, um, I think, I, I don't remember if this actually got in, but like I pitched once that his tie would be in a paper shredder. Uh, <laughs> and then as he got closer and closer, somebody would behead him. Uh, <laughs> like that you would, that you, would, that you just like turn, inspired by the Dutch politician. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, that's a terrible tragedy, yeah, and that uh, is not inspiring. Uh, but the, yeah, but the, uh, 
it's funny to talk about two beheadings in a <laughs> comedy podcast. Um, uh, but yeah, you would just, I mean, like each day there'd be a new thing. And then some days there'd be like, we'd be like, uh, sort of blue skying anything. Um, and you'd be told, okay, what's the dumbest idea you can come up with? The dumbest thing. And that was when somebody pitched like Kraft Punk. Yeah. Uh, was like what is the, what is the stupidest idea that you can like the bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. and then how do we elevate it into something bonkers and funny yeah. god I loved working on that show um, Eric has said on I think on other podcasts uh, about a bit that I pitched um, that almost got him arrested or they found out that it was like massively illegal to do uh, which is that I wanted him to run down um, the subway in New York wearing an old-timey conductor's costume. Like, like yeah, you know, like yeah, big yeah. mustache, whatever. But as he was running towards the back of the subway to yell, the brakes are out, you know, there are no uh, brakes! The brakes are out! The track is loose! <laughs> like, like, as a cartoon yeah. character. But apparently that's a full-blown felony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did he, did he do it? Oh, no, 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 oh, they no, found no. it before. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think they found out right before or something. Um, wow. Yeah. Has some, was something ever rejected for being just too dumb or too weird? No. No? No. That's uh, kind of awesome. It's just whatever whatever worked in the in the show and then, like, mm-hmm. whatever they needed for that show. I mean, they, they walk out of that writer's room with so much stuff right. that they can try and then they have meetings and decide what's the like standout bits that they're definitely going to do, and then you know uh, what are like bits that they could do that are really cheap. Um, yeah. What What's your uh, favorite bit that you got on the show? That I got on? Yeah, or you can say in general too. Uh, uh, that I got on. It's really short. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I love that show. Um, my favorite bit that I got on is Eric going up to some random person on the street saying, uh, hey, can you explain this to me? And then scalping himself. <laughs> That's my favorite of all the things. I love that. It's now, so... Now how do you even think of, of doing that as a bit? <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what, what do you mean? Like, I don't even know. Like, I, I, how, how did all that come together as one... That was the whole pitch. I just, yeah. I just went in one day. It was fully it was, formed? Yeah, I went in and I was like, oh man, you should go up to somebody on the street and say, can you explain this to me? And then scalp yourself. <laughs> Uh, my favorite bit that I didn't write, uh, I don't think I wrote it. Also, it's very, like, it's moved so fast and it's like a lot of yelling, but also a lot of seriousness, uh, is these are people, uh, where he brings out three people and it's like, these are people, three people step out and they each have a number. And then the guest went, uh, uh, I don't know, like number two. And that person was shot. And then they just dragged that person <laughs> off, and that was it. Uh, I don't. I think that was the season before mm-hmm. I wrote for the show. Um, but I can't. I mean, again, I yeah. can't remember. It's crazy. Yeah. Were, were you ever there for like when they were like recording with the guests? No, um, I was not on set. Yeah, but did you did you like write stuff for that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. A lot of the time, it would be like, for example. Uh, uh, while you're interviewing this guest, you have your feet in a bucket of lasagna, or you know, like just, yeah. or, or like suddenly a mouse crawls out of your uh, coffee mug, or mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, 
my favorite bits are ones where like bodies fall from off camera. So I think at some point I pitched that a body fell from the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's just, what's a list of things that could happen right. in an interview. Yeah. Yeah. Eric Andre, he's he's so funny. He's super funny. It's just to see him like in normal comedy movies. Yeah. So it's like they're not utilizing him as he should be. Well, I mean, he doesn't only want to be hurt. That's true. Yeah. Uh yeah. I mean, like he was really, really good in Man Seeking Woman. Right, um, yeah, yeah. And that's uh so that's awesome. He's got a he's got mm-hmm. a good range. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh and so you worked on corporate. Yes. Uh, how'd you get that job? That was a writing sample and then an interview. Uh, The writing sample was a, um, I think I'm allowed to say this, Uh, I sold a pilot to FX. uh, And then um, after a while they passed on the pilot, uh, but that script was my um, sort Mm. of uh, sample script for like a half hour. Uh, And then I went in and interviewed and they were... um, uh, they wanted somebody who was a little bit more corporate than uh, the rest of the um, writing staff. And I'm a little bit more corporate, like oh, more pro-corporate. Uh, oh, oh, I see. Because uh, um, I think capitalism is good and not that's not... Oh. Nobody thinks that's true anymore. <laughs> uh, Interesting. Uh, I'll edit that out. Oh, no, no. I mean, that's no, fine. I'm, I'm, I mean, like, joking, it's, I'm you joking. can... <laughs> I, like it's real anyway um uh but yeah that was um an extraordinary process i love that show um i think it's one of the best shows on tv oh thank you yeah thank you i uh did not write for the second season um but i think that their uh plan is just to turn over the writing staff for each season so that they always have a different flavor or they lied to me and they just fired me for no Uh, so that show is incredibly bleak. Yes. The, probably the bleakest comedy maybe ever. It's up there. It's great. Uh, do you like ride comedy kind of in that darker territory? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so my theory on laughter is that laughter is the response to anything that surprises but does not frighten. Mm. Um, that, uh, and by that I mean that, um, you, in order to create surprise, there has to be context. Like, you can't just, like, throw a bunch of surprising imagery at something because then there's no context for what it is, and then it's not surprising. It's just chaos. Uh, so you have to have context, and then you have to undermine that context with a surprise. And the closer you get to frightening somebody, the funnier and more cathartic the laugh will be. Mm. Uh, it's also why in horror movies, I think... After a scare, when everybody gasps in the theater, then you remember you're safe and then everybody laughs. Yeah. Uh, so I think what corporate does well is that you get right up to the edge of like terror, like personal, like emotional terror about like how fucked the world is. Uh, and then you it, it, like constantly sort of like balancing that that line is what the show does. Um, better than I think any show on television. Mm. Yeah, except maybe the president show. Right. Well, that's <laughs> kind of too real. I mean, I guess corporate's also extremely real yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you you wrote uh, the final episode of season one, mm-hmm. uh, Remember Day, which mm-hmm. is like a a nine eleven uh, Christmas episode. I guess yes. how people described it. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, I honestly don't 
I had I pitched a 9/11 idea pretty early. Um I I don't remember if it was the showrunner wanted to do a uh, a 9/11 episode and then I brought in a pitch or if I pitched something and then it unrelatedly the next week it was like we should do a 9/11 episode. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't remember. Um and I don't want to take credit for whether or not it was my idea or not um i've uh yeah i i mean there were a there were a few i don't remember i honestly <laughs> i don't remember remember day um <laughs> like i don't yeah i have no i don't know but it was i did pitch at some point uh at some point the episode was structured exactly like the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was my pitch. Um, and I think that elements of that remain, which is that, like, the opening of Charlie Brown Christmas special is uh, Charlie and Linus, like, walking across town, and uh, uh, Charlie's depressed and doesn't know if what, you know, what the point of Christmas is anymore. And I think that that sort of flavor is retained in the opening of the current episode, um, which is the two of them walking through a uh, Remember Day store and being mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know what the point of Remember Day is anymore. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Does that answer that question? Yeah, yeah. Great. Do you, do you like writing half hour? I do. Yeah. I do. Uh, I'm currently writing hour-long non-comedy. Right, yeah. Uh, so that's been an interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like... I love writing, man. Yeah. I really love the act of, like, the physical sitting down and writing. I really love. And now most people would say they don't like that. I oh, think, it's the only right? part I really, really yeah, like. Interesting. Yeah. I wish, I wish that's, I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed when I moved to LA originally and was like, wait, you have to sit in a room with other people? <laughs> like, all I wanted to do was sit in a room by myself. Yeah. Um, and so when I do get to do that, it's great. Mm. Uh, that's the best part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now that's like uh, a very small part, though, of being like a, t- a TV writer. Yes, because that's like the very end of it, the very last process. Yes, pretty much. yes, yes. So, I mean, have you ever thought of getting more into movies then? Because that's probably more alone time. Um, I have <laughs> been um, uh, pitching movies around, um, and it's been going really well. Uh, it is a lot more alone time. I'm also just started uh, writing my first book. Which oh, is wow. exclusively alone time. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that book will get pu- Well, I mean, I guess now all books get published. <laughs> yeah, just who does it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't know where it will end up, but I'm really uh, happy about mm. that. It's been so great to just, at the end of the day, sit down and just write for myself. Mm-hmm. It's great. So you mentioned you're working on a, an hour-long show, and that's the, the Twilight Zone. Yeah, that's the Twilight the Zone. The reboot of the Twilight Zone, which is insane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how did that happen? Um, well, uh, um, so Jordan Peele is the executive producer of the Twilight Zone and Jordan and I were both at Boom Chicago at the same time. And though I haven't worked for Jordan in the interim, uh, when we were at Boom, uh, the two of us used to pitch horror movies and science fiction ideas to each other a lot. Uh, and I think that that was brewing somewhere in the back of his head. And he recommended me for uh, for the job, even though it wasn't like a direct, like, I don't think he had any con- direct control over the hiring process. 
Uh, and then I brought in content that was the most Twilight zone of what I had written and also came in with like five or six episode pitches. Um, and that's how I got hired for that was specifically because of Jordan, but also like, I mean, I've loved the Twilight Zone for forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, what do you find the differences between doing like half hour comedy to doing like an hour long uh, drama type or I don't know, Twilight Zone like? Twilight Zone is specifically about turns and plot Mm -hmm. you know like it can't just be i mean you can fill out you can fill out an entire five minute section of a comedy script with just like funny shit happening right yeah yeah. uh and it doesn't necessarily have to like service it should service the larger plot but it doesn't have to like you can have two two characters get in an argument and if the argument's funny and they like throw shit at each other then you know it's great and it gets to be in the in the episode but with Twilight Zone, everything has to have a reason to exist that propels this thing forward. Um, and that's the biggest difference is that everything, everything in a Twilight yeah. Zone episode has to be for a reason. It must be so hard to break story on that because that's like pretty much like the, the that's like kind of the I don't want to say the main thing, but it's like the thing that people are drawn to is the story. Yeah. Um, towards the end of the process currently the um execs have become a lot more uh personal with the story breaking so it um it's a lot more like here's this idea that i have here's the pitch here's where i see it going and then being like okay go ahead Mm -hmm. uh where whereas with i don't yeah it's it's a lot I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say yeah, yeah. about Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because like Black Mirror, everyone's like, that's the new Twilight Zone. So it's interesting now that there is like a an actual Twilight Zone coming back and kind of maybe going in a different direction than Black Mirror. Yep. I definitely can't answer yeah, that yeah, question. Yeah, 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 yeah. No worries. No worries. Uh, so you you talked about the development process. You've mm-hmm. sold a lot of shows mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. What are like kind of the, what are like the keys to selling a show? Um... So I think what everybody wants is to know that you know what you're doing. And the best way to do that is to know what your idea is. Mm. Like when you go in to pitch a script, you should be able to answer any question. Even if it's not, I think that again, people get focused on like, what's the right answer for this? For what are they, what do they want me to say? And really what they want you to say is that you have an answer and then they decide whether or not it's the answer they want. Um, so with pitching and coming up with stories, it's like, why do I want to write this? What's the core idea here? And, and, uh, like, why is this the best way to tell that story? And then the execs or the, the network can ask you anything and you'd be like, well, this is because of this. And if they don't like that, then they won't buy your show. But at the very least, you won't be like fumbling around trying to figure out what it is that they're looking for in that moment. Right. Um, I think that, especially now with so many outlets for for comedy or for drama or for what, what anything, uh, that I think I think more specific voices are being rewarded. Um, like a show like Fleabag could not have existed ten years ago. Like it just, there would right. would not have been a home for it. And now you have this extremely dynamic single singular story of a single woman's experience 
Uh, and that's great. And I feel like that's this kind of thing that's happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell a story that you know all the answers to, and you should know all the answers to the questions because it's your story that you've come up with. Right. Like, I feel like if you ask for, here's a stupid idea, a version. If you ask George Lucas any Star Wars question before he got rid of the series, uh, he would have had an answer to it. And you'd be like, What? Uh, some of the time and some of the time you'd be like oh okay <laughs> uh, but he would always know like he'd be like oh you know this is, it, it's a tax it's a tax embargo on the <laughs> trade federation and he'd be like oh okay but it wouldn't have been that he didn't know like right. he probably wouldn't be like I don't know mm-hmm. um, yeah so I feel like that's a good model to go mm-hmm. off of and you seem to in kind of all your answers you seem to be more of a do what you want to do and then see if they like it or not. Yeah, man, you can't like yeah. you have no idea what that person. So you're the person across the room from you in a pitch has had a day before you got there, and they could have had any kind of they could have been like cut off in traffic, or their kid could have yelled at them, or 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 their mom is sick, anything, anything. And then you come into their life and you pitch them a story. If you go in and you don't know exactly what you want to be there to, to tell them, then um, then you're going to leave that room feeling awful. And the truth is that whether or not your show gets chosen or moves forward, it's not just whether or not the idea is good. It's also the day that that, uh, that other human being had. Like, you know, are they sick to their stomachs from their burrito? They're human. Yeah. Um, so just go in and have your story, pitch it, be proud of it, leave, and then hope that they had a good day or that they connected with you. Mm. But it's like speed dating. Like, it's either there or it's not. And trying to speed date correctly is never the right way to go on a speed date. Right. Yeah. What would you like to be doing next? I really want my own show. Yeah. Uh, I've come really close a lot. Uh, and, uh, I'm really proud of the work that I've done previously, but I would like to see, uh, I mean, my eventual goal is that on a billboard, it would say from the creator of blank comes blank because that would mean that I've already had a success. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, that's my, I really want, I really want my own show. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to wrap up. Cool. Uh, with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea I had. Great. All right. Here we go. Um, so you know, like on Twitter, when uh, like a tweet will go viral, uh-huh. and then someone will then respond like, "While you're here, check out my SoundCloud." Uh-huh. So this would be like in real life with like a doctor patient. So the doctor would be like, uh, "I had your test results, but first, I- I'd really love if you could check out my SoundCloud before uh-huh. I give them to you." <laughs> and so that's kind of yeah, that's the main idea. Yeah, that works. Yeah, that totally works. And also, I don't even think it needs to be tethered to Twitter in any way. Like if you went, I right. can totally yes, that totally works. Yeah. Wait, what am I supposed to say? That's, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, that feels good to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a doctor being like, hi, oh, can I get your thoughts on my... I mean, like in the 90s, it would have been like mixtape, and now yeah. it's SoundCloud. Yeah, that that's yeah. totally works. Yeah. All right. Great. Cool. Uh, anything you want to plug? Um, I believe I have one more episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway um, this oh, yeah. season. Uh, so please check that out. Uh, we just had one last night. Uh, and then... Uh, please watch Miracle Workers on TBS um, when that comes out, I believe, either this fall or uh, this winter, um, starring Steve Buscemi and Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, yeah. Uh, hopefully that show will be awesome. All right. 
All right, thanks for coming to the show. podcast for more information and shows visit boardwalkaudio.com don't forget to rate and subscribe now